This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Let's face it, gang, the story here that everybody in this town is talking about and it was fixated on over the last little while was uh, light rail transit and the uh, debate and eventual vote which occurred yesterday at Hamilton City Council. Uh, for those who watched it or street live streamed it, whatever the case might be, it was a, a dramatic, uh, emotional meeting at times. And, uh, of course, the ultimate uh, outcome, a 10-5 to 5 vote to move on and, and, and submit the uh, LRT plans uh, for the environmental assessment with Queen's Park. But there were some uh, interesting speeches and uh, comments made by the councillors. Uh, no public delegations yesterday. This was just them focusing on what had to be done and, uh, and their thoughts on this. Chad Collins joins us. He is the councillor for Ward 5, and uh, I'm so pleased to get him on the program. We're going to talk with Paul Johnson in a few minutes, too, but I want to get the political angle on this. Chad, thank you for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Thanks for having me, Bill. Listen, I, I, as I was watching yesterday, uh, and, and you kind of kicked off the, uh, the whole discussion and debate about this, that's um, probably the longest speech I think you've ever made at City Council, isn't it? Yeah. I'm, and I'm and one of the most one, emotional, but... too. Oh, thanks. I, I'm usually not one of the most... Uh verbose and um i I'm, i usually try to keep my my comments uh, quick and to the point so that that's true and i i did ask certainly the mayor for some discretion well you had a lot to say about, you had a lot to say yes. what was going through your head as, as this was unwinding yesterday well i mean just leading up to the meeting um you know it's it's been a very stressful time over the last i would say two years for the entire community and i think some of the points i made last night were that you know um, whether you're supportive of this project or you're against it, um, emotions have run high. Um, the the community, I believe, is very split, and um, and um, you know that's probably the case across all the wards in the city. And and I know that some people are trying to put on a brave face, like my ward is ninety percent uh, opposed to this or ninety percent in favor. We know those numbers aren't true. We know that it's. You know, we're almost right down the middle in this community in terms of what people's opinions are, and those opinions and, and that division and split is, has been reflected on council with many of the votes that have occurred and many of the speeches that have occurred over the last um, number of years and, and more specifically over the last couple of months as we've um, drawn near to the decision day that eventually would determine whether the EA passes or not. During and your during time, that, during, yeah. during your time on council, uh, you you've been there, done that. For I mean, let's you know go down the list. The Red Hill debate, sure. obviously, yeah. amalgamation, uh, the stadium issue, and now this. Um, I I don't know. I mean, the stadium debate for a whole lot of reasons is something that that a lot of us still remember because of the the back and forth that went on there. But mm-hmm. but maybe maybe amalgamation uh, would would be a, a, at the same level as what we had with this debate too. I mean, because you're right, it got more than just uh, controversial. It got vitriolic in in a in a big big way. It did, and those, you know, and the the opinions that one carries into our committee meetings, into the council meeting, oftentimes can affect other decisions that we make. And so, if, you know, I know you follow City Hall very closely, Bill, and, and there are a number of others that do, whether they're in the media or just people who are very engaged with municipal politics. And what we start to see over time is that decisions uh, are clouded um, because of this issue. And people start to lash out at one another at the committee, and we start to see long meetings and we start to see, um, you know, I think many people last night going into last night's meeting expected a very long, drawn out meeting with competing motions and people talking over one another. And uh, and that's been the norm almost. And, and it starts to when we deal with the budget issue, uh, the budget, sorry, in general, uh, we start to see that that, that same kind of uh, 
uh, split develop. And I'm not supporting that motion because he or she is an LRT supporter, or I'm not supporting that amendment because, uh, you know, he's opposed to this project. And it really doesn't help us move any issue forward and starts to take away from a lot of the good work that we've done over this term of council and past terms of council. And I rhymed them off last night um, in terms of, you know, the accomplishments that we've done when we work as a team. And, you know, we have some of the lowest budget increases over the last five years that have made Hamilton a lot more affordable and a lot more competitive compared to other municipalities across the province. Um, we've resolved uh, the first round of area rating, although not perfect. Um, it was an issue that Council came to some agreement on. Uh, we were moving ahead with a very ambitious and exciting waterfront plan. And lost in all of this was last night's decision to uh, confirm our $50 million investment in affordable housing. And, and almost all of those issues that I just rhymed off, we've almost had unanimous support, if not unanimous support, on them. And so while we're elected as individuals, uh, when we're when we're we go to city hall, I think the community expects that we're going to work as a team, and and we can't always find unanimity, and um, you know at times there will be emotional issues that we deal with, but I, I think we accomplish our best work when everyone's working together. And what's occurred over the last number of weeks and the last couple of months is that we've seen that split and that divide, and we've seen you know the wear and tear on individuals. And I there's not a person around the table that will honestly say that they've been sleeping sleeping regularly eating regularly i mean we have constituents phoning and emailing every single day and they have very diverse opinions on the project and so it's not an easy decision to make when you know you have neighborhoods and streets and even families in some cases that hold different opinions um on this subject and so it's been a very stressful situation well we've seen that happen and and Mm -hmm. I, I mean, you know, I, I, I'm not trying to draw an analogy with the American Civil War, but I mean, you know, that was always characterized as brother versus brother. And, and mm-hmm. pers- I know that personal relationships on city council were impacted by this as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no doubt. And, um, you know, the, and again, I, I think we've accomplished our best work when, when we work as a team. And what I tried to stress last night is whether we're, you know, you've been historically against or for this, at some point in time, we got to move on. And, uh, you know, it's no secret where I've been on the LRT, and I, I still believe firmly today that it's not the best plan for this community. Um, I believe that, you know, there are other things that we could invest in that will uh, assist us with the many problems that we have related to infrastructure and the challenges that we face with transit. W- you know, the, the decision I came to last night, knowing when I was going into that meeting that the EA is going to pass, is that do we want to continue to throw rotten tomatoes at this thing? and sabotage it and ramp things up and keep this divide going in the community and on council? Or do we come to the conclusion that now that the majority of council is set to pass the EA and purchase about 70 to $80 million worth of properties, including the monies we've already spent, um, you know, do we try to make this thing work or do we try to sabotage it? And well, because you've, appeal, you've, you've yeah. seen the other end of that spectrum, haven't you? I mean, you know, mm-hmm. the, the debate about the expressway went on and on and on. And yeah. even though council yeah. had reaffirmed their support for that, even though there were a referendum that had supported that, there were still those on city council that tried to block that in every way. And all it led to were cost overruns and delays. Correct. You're right, though. And that's a great analogy. And, and so do we want to work together? And knowing that there's a, a good chunk of council and a good chunk of the community that um, doesn't believe in this plan, that believes there's a better way, but in the absence of having the opportunity to develop that plan, um, and I know there's some have hinted that, well, if you know we just keep this thing alive in terms of the, you know creating some doubt and 
and the hope that there's another plan in the wings. You know, maybe there's some kind of a pre-provincial election Hail Mary that's thrown to Hamilton and, you know, we're going to be able to go in a different direction. We didn't see that this past week. We, we, you know, the province doubled down, the premier doubled down, and certainly um, our local member, uh, Mr. McMeekin, made it quite clear that that's not the case. We certainly were waiting to hear something from Mr. Brown, and he was fairly silent on it in terms of not offering that plan B. And um, and so we, we walked into that meeting knowing that the EA was going to pass and uh, that there was no hope. And so we could provide, you know, from a very political, crass political perspective, we could try to provide some hope to people who are against this, who are in our camp, who believe that, you know, there's maybe a better way and another way to go. Um, but we know that's not the case. And, you know, I know that there's some people saying, well, maybe next June when the envelope's opened and we see what the cost of this thing is, you know, there's a way to, to, to sabotage it at that point in time and, and go in a different direction. And there isn't. Once those properties are purchased, um, once the construction companies, and there are many of them that will bid on this, and they will spend a lot of money to bid just for the bid process, you're basically on the hook to go forward with this project. And so I think what you heard last night from those people around the table who are against the project and who still have some misgivings and still have some concerns is that we're willing to work with each other. And I was very surprised and pleasantly surprised that to a person, although we all shared our continued to share our concerns and in some cases on the other side of the table support, I think there was an agreement to an individual to make this thing work and try as best we can to help Hamilton succeed rather than to tear this thing down and um, and create the obstacles that you referenced earlier. Well, I thought that your comments uh, as, as early into the proceedings as they were kind of set the tone for some of the other speakers, and, and, and that was insightful. It, it reminded me of, of, again, to go back to that amalgamation debate, Chad, and you were there mm-hmm. for that too. You still got the scars. Mm-hmm. Uh, that... Uh, <laughs> Uh, one of the most vocal opponents to amalgamation, of course, was Murray Ferguson, who was on Ancaster Council, Lloyd Ferguson's brother. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and he fought against this. I was on that subcommittee that used to go around to all the local councils, and, and, and Murray was just dead set against this. And, and, mm-hmm. But after it was all said and done, the dust settled, amalgamation was upon us, he was one of the most ardent supporters of it, simply saying, look, I don't like this, but now I'm going to make it work. He got involved in downtown Hamilton projects. He got mm-hmm. a number of different initiatives like that. And, and, and I, I, as you were speaking on that yesterday, I got to thinking mm-hmm. that's the kind of attitude. It's, it's not just healing. It's a matter of saying, I think as Councillor Vanderbeek said, you know, if you're going to err, err on the side of progress. And, and, and that was pretty mm-hmm. insightful. And I think that was the mindset a lot of you had yesterday. Yeah, and, and no doubt. And and as I tried to point out, I think near the end of my speech is that, you know, everyone around the table has something to offer. You know, whether you, if you're against this project, as many of us are, um, you know, we all have something to offer in terms of trying to make, in our sense, the best of a bad situation in terms of where this has gone from a political perspective. But no one wants to see Hamilton fail. And so, you know, I, I know that a lot of people have been critical of, you know, um, suburban councillors for not supporting transit. And, and I think what I heard last night is we want to make this work. And I know that some people have been critical of individuals for, you know, uh, trying to stand in the way of this thing. And I, I, it's our democratic right to raise concerns that have been presented to us by residents and businesses. At the end of the day, though, this project is moving forward. And we can either decide to be a part of making things happen for the better or... We can, as you just suggested, with instances we can draw on in the past with amalgamation, with the expressway or other other big projects where there's been controversy and, and a divided community, 
or we can try to, you know, um, do whatever we can to, de- to delay, to sabotage it, to try to prevent it from going forward, knowing that in the end, that in the, especially in this case, council has spoken, it is going forward, and um, and I really don't see any other alternative um, other than trying to make things work and and do what's right for everyone, and including those people who still have their their issues with the project. I, I would think if. Uh truth be told here, Chad, even those that support this project have some reservations about this. I mean, it's it's certainly not perfect. There's still a lot of warts and, and, and still a lot of detail to be done on this. I mean, this is a, we're not ready to put the shovels in the ground here and just, you know, get, you know, big hug and sing kumbaya. There's a lot of work to be done here. Absolutely. And, and you know, I, I, I think we went through some of those issues last night in terms of, you know, Rapid Ready said, our, our transit plan, to be clear, said that you need a certain level of, um, of ridership to support the system and, and make it a successful system. We're nowhere close to that. And so we know that we have a lot of work ahead of us in terms of building transit in order to get to a ridership level that uh, is going to sustain whatever system is put in place as part of the BLAST network. And there are all kinds of issues with cost. You know, I, I've heard some pretty interesting things over the last couple of weeks and months that this is, might be revenue neutral, or, you know, we're going to make so much in terms of tax assessment that it, it's going to pay for itself and then some. And and I, I, I have a pretty firm grasp on the budget process, and I, I find that statement or those statements hard to believe. And so council will be challenged with finding resources to support a system that currently is, uh, you know, we're witnessing uh, lower ridership numbers. Um, we know that we'll have some labor relation issues to deal with, with ATU. Mm-hmm. There's some very unique contract language that may bump the price on this. And I, I fully think that and, and suspect that the vast majority of Hamiltonians would like to see our HSR drivers, um, you know, um, operating this system rather than a third-party contract. Yeah, we talked with Eric Tech about that yesterday morning on the program. Look, i got about a minute left here. One mm-hmm. of the other things that uh, didn't get a whole lot of uh, discussion yesterday, but I know it's, it's front of mind with you as well, is, is the letter from Minister Del Duca, which pretty much opened the, the discussion about going back to Eastgate as, as, the, as mm-hmm. one of the main points on this. Uh, he talked about doing it with uh, within the existing funding envelope and and finding efficiencies. And I'm paraphrasing, but I mean that that was the language there, as opposed to what mm-hmm. they did with the stadium. Like, okay, here's new money to try to make this thing work. Uh, I'm I'm a little nervous about that as to how that's going to roll out. Well, I think if that area is provided, it, that's a very unique area compared to the rest of the line. If you read the reports, the economic uplift there is virtually non-existent. Oh, it's already happened. It's a very successful, thriving yeah. commercial district. So I think if there's an opportunity for council to look at providing the same discretion that we provided for James Street North, where we allow turns in and out of properties, where we allow, you know, we're not forcing people to make U-turns. And and um, and so traffic is essentially mixed in with, with, the, uh, with the LRT there. Um, if the main concern from the majority of council is getting it to Eastgate, then we can accomplish that. And, and I think there needs to be, though, some certainly some recognition that the businesses there are, are very concerned about access. Many of them are car-centered and car-culture-based businesses. There's drive-throughs there. There's you know there are major shopping centers, and you know they're relying certainly to an extent on transit ridership. But by and large, they are drawing in vehicles, hundreds if not thousands of them, every day. So to block that access will create tremendous problems. And and again, it's about, it's about being part of the solution rather than the problem. Uh, I'm interested to work with my colleagues on finding a plan that certainly um, allows us to move forward. 
but hopefully my colleagues will be cognizant of the fact that there are businesses there that will have some issues, design issues that we'll need to overcome that may in fact lead us to some savings. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. City Council, after a rigorous uh, discussion yesterday, voted 10 to 5 to move the environmental assessment, of course, of the LRT project uh, to Queen's Park. Uh, The catalyst, I'm sure one of the catalysts anyway, was the letter from Transportation Minister uh, Stephen Del Duca to Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger that essentially said, yeah, we'll we'll support you going over to Eastgate Square and we'll work within the existing uh, funding envelope to try to find the money for that. So in other words, there's nothing at this point anyway about any new money and there was no discussion about having city council, or in other words, you, me, the taxpayers, uh, to foot the bill for this. So there's still an awful lot of work to be done, and we're going to talk about some of that work in just a couple of seconds. But uh, for those who uh, were not able to watch, it was uh, an interesting meeting, uh, as we mentioned with uh, Councillor Chad Collins just a couple of minutes ago, very emotional at times. And uh, even those that have had some reservations uh, finally had to to come forward and and, and take a stand on this. And there were some very dramatic moments from a a couple of the councillors, including Dundas Councillor Arlene Vanderbeek. I have become convinced that this is not a terrible risk that we thought it might be, but an opportunity not to be wasted. There could be tax impacts and future community impacts. The remaining challenge for me is to get to a point in the process where we can reliably understand these financial and community impacts. It is the unknown actual costs of the LRT and what that impact will be for Hamilton taxpayers going forward. Just some of the uh, comments from yesterday. Obviously, uh, Car- uh, Councillor Arlene Vanderbeek from Dundas, Councillor Tom Jackson from the East Mountain in Ward 6, uh, both of whom uh, decided to support moving the project forward, notwithstanding their reservations. And, and lastly, in that clip, uh, Councillor Judy Partridge uh, from uh, Flamborough, Waterdown area, who uh, voted against it and still says that well, she just doesn't have enough information. Ten to five, the final vote. So what do we do going forward right now? Uh, you know, we're not out of the woods by any stretch of the imagination. There's still a great deal of work to do, and, and a lot of that responsibility is going to fall on our next guest. Paul Johnson, of course, is uh, the project manager for the LRT project. He was there, obviously, yesterday at the meeting, and he's uh, with us on the Bill Kelly Show right now on CHML. Good morning, Paul. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Bill. Good. It was, uh, it's been a long couple of weeks, especially since council's been going back and forth on this. Did you get a chance to exhale last night? <laughs> Exhale, and, uh, and and I think for the first time in, uh, in at least seven days, I got more than three hours sleep, so it was great. That's good. Well, and but let's let's talk about going forward right now. And as, as Councillor Collins alluded to us just a couple of seconds ago, uh, we're we're not out of the woods. We're not ready to st- uh, you know put shovels in the ground and start moving on this. You've got a lot of work yet to do. Oh, absolutely. And and uh, you know, I did get a couple of emails or things saying, "Hey, isn't this great?" It, and it, as though we were at the finish line, and, and that's never been the conversation in terms of our project team's uh, minds. Uh, it's how do we keep moving along. The incredible amount of work that has to happen over what is, once when it was announced, about an eight-year project, uh, it continues. And it, and it got a little bit heavier uh, last night. Uh, I can tell you we're Yeah, let's talk very- about that. I mean, the, the news about the extension to Eastgate was, well, kind of non-news, because we'd, we'd heard the day before from Ted McBeacon that that was a real possibility, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, which kind of indicated that the, the province was going to come on side. Uh, that's the good news. Now you've got your work cut out for you. You and your crew, I guess, are going to have to go door knocking again. Yeah. Well, certainly in our engagement strategy, we're going to uh, be extending those extra three kilometers. So we'll be working on what the strategy is for that. And we're going to be getting out 
uh, you know, I've set the challenge that within the next month, uh, let's get those community connectors out, at least providing basic information to business owners and homeowners along the corridor, as we have been um, throughout the rest of the corridor. The second piece is that there's a little bit of good news in that the, uh, you know, A, we have an approved environmental uh, project report for the, the piece that went to Eastgate Square, and really very few uh, changes uh, are from, a, from an alignment perspective, from an overall perspective of LRT, are expected along that route. So uh, in many ways, although some parts of the the other part of the corridor, we've had to do a bit more extra work. This one, a little more straightforward. So that's the good news. But, uh, you know, we have some work to do. We have to update, again, uh, our, our report so it can be submitted with a full route in it. And then we've got to get on to the engineering and the design work uh, and, and make sure that this can happen uh, relatively within the same time frames that, uh, that we have. We believe we can. The goal of council, the goal of the province, as they stated in the memorandum of agreement, was, you know, let's award this contract in 2018. And, uh, you know, Andrew Hope and I are, are confident that we can continue to do that. Let's let's talk about that, because you're not reinventing the wheel here now that this is going to go back over to Eastgate Square again, because this this was the initial plan. You've already done a lot of work in that regard, haven't you? We have, right up to including approval of uh, of an environmental project report for this portion. There are some minor updates that have to happen, but in terms of where stop locations are, it's pretty straightforward. Uh, you know, the Parkdale, the Nash, the Eastgate are there. Uh, this was always to be a center-running approach to LRT, so that's the LRT as it is now in the whole, in most of the corridor, running in the center of the road. So uh, the key components and things that we, uh, you know, uh, need in place are there. Uh, update work has to happen. And, of course, then some of this is let's get it ready for the procurement process so that the companies that are bidding on this project uh, understand the full intent of the route and uh, they can price it accordingly. Well, you've got another, another overpass to deal with now going over the Red Hill this time. Uh, is, is, is there enough bridge work there? Is there sufficient uh, work to be done there? Do you have to build something new? What's, uh, I, I know you haven't done the design. Yep study on this, but I mean, you've got it in your mind's eye right now. Yeah, and it was there, and you know, when the uh, the EA work was being done, that bridge was there. Uh, so there has been some work on on that. Uh, there may have to, there's certainly going to have to be some uh, some work done on the bridge. Uh, the extent of that is uh, we've got to reconfirm. But um, you know, we looked at that before. Uh, you know, I don't I don't know that it's a replacement. That's one where I'm a little I'm a little less definitive in terms of replacement. I think there's ways we can uh, strengthen that bridge and and ensure that the uh, the LRT can run across it. So uh, we're going to do a bit more of that work. But that bridge is, you know, relatively new. The Red Hill was, uh, is not an, an, an old uh, structure in this community. So we're, uh, we're going to do that work. But I think I'm, I'm a little more confident that we can figure out a way to, uh, to strengthen that bridge rather than looking at replacing it. I, I know we're not ready to get into some of the minutiae of this right now, but Councillor Collins in his comments to us just a few minutes ago, Paul, suggested that that uh, you know, in the interest of trying to make this thing work and 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 allay some of the concerns that some people have, that maybe that stretch uh, from the Red Hill all the way over to Eastgate, uh, maybe there could be some flexibility vis-a-vis left-hand turns, etc. Unlike what other parts of the of the the route might have, simply because that's essentially a commercial area now with a lot of basically drive-through traffic, places like Starsky's and things of that nature that are already established there. Uh, would be looking for that sort of thing. Is is there a possibility of some flexibility in, in something like that? 
Yeah, I think we, we want to have that uh, balanced conversation. We've had that throughout the route that we've been working on for the last uh, year or so. Uh, so, you know, the balance is that we want this to be rapid and reliable transit. And the balance is, of course, that we want uh, both residents and those uh, coming to access businesses uh, to not feel that this is an overly burdensome uh, addition to the to the right-of-way. So, I, I you know, to give you an example in Westdale, you know, to keep up, uh, to go with that rapid, reliable approach, we had actually changed some of the the ingress and egress to Westdale Village on Dalewood and Haddon. And at the end of the day, we went back to the way it is today. Uh, Residents said to us, look, we're not on for some of the more radical changes you're looking at. This is really going to affect traffic in and out. At Paradise, we've got a left-hand turn so people can still come out of Westdale, turn left, go across uh, the Main Street Bridge and and east into Hamilton. So throughout this process, you know, we we do try and balance. Uh, We want rapid and reliable transportation, but, uh, you know, we want to also make this work for communities. So I think that's that's the same message we'll take into the, uh, the, the work that we have to do here in the Far East end of this project now um, because that's uh, this isn't a uh, we have to do it this way and there is no bend kind of approach and Metrolinx has never said that but it is that balance of rapid transit versus how do we get people in and out of where they want to go. This uh, sheds a different light on, on this project as well because I know one of the concerns that, that many people had when this revised route which in other words the Queenston traffic circle was, was being developed some time ago was that connection to the ghost service which the province and the city for that matter were so adamant about uh, this makes this a little bit easier with this uh, GO station uh, that's not going to be too far away from Eastgate Square that's being developed, of course, down at the bottom of, uh, of uh, Highway 20 right now. Uh, now, obviously, there would probably be rapid bus connections between that, too, but it, it, it gives you that linkage that a lot of people were looking for. Well, it does. Uh, you know, the bottom line is Eastgate is a much more natural hub for our transportation system, as a transit system as it exists today. So uh, it, it helps us out a lot. It's not just that we couldn't have figured out ways to make it work at Queenston, but we were we were really doing a major reconfiguration. And, uh, you know, there's a reason why Eastgate was the, the terminus point on the east end in the beginning. Uh, and, and we feel very good about it from an operations perspective. But as you've mentioned, uh, from a connectivity perspective of the GO station, chances to do that well with buses in the east end through Eastgate. But the other piece is, you know, I know we've lost the spur line down uh, James Street through this process, but chances also to continue to strengthen our, our bus service on the A line down so that we can connect to the Hunter Street GO station, uh, the, the West Harbor GO station, and of course now to Confederation. Yeah, I, I told the story some weeks ago about uh, the old days when I used to have to commute to Toronto every day to downtown Toronto, and, and I would invariably take the, bu- the train in the morning from uh, the old Leuna station. Now, I'd take the bus back in the afternoon, and I'd get let off at City Hall, and I had to walk all the way back down to the Leuna station because there was really no other way to get there because that's where my car was, you know, from, from where I, I did the commute in the morning. Uh, but if you have bus service that's going in there, you know, express bus service back and forth, it's going to make that an awful lot easier. It is, and and part of the conversation last night, and and uh, you know, I I know our city manager feels this way, as do uh, all the folks that are involved in in any form of transportation in this city. Is we need to be very clear about what the plan is to continue to work to build our entire transit system, regardless of whether LRT was 11 kilometers from Queenston or. Uh, 14 kilometers from Eastgate, it is it is part of a much broader system, and people want to know what that plan is. 
Uh, we've heard through this process, you know, if, you, if you've got park and rides on your mind in suburban areas, let's, let's talk about that. When is it coming online? And then, of course, the most important piece of all planning is what's the financial plan to get us there. It's wonderful to have grand plans and ideas. It's another thing, you know, to actually have the, uh, the financing worked out. And, and I would say that, you know, our goal here is that by the time, uh, you know, we hope a little earlier than a year from now, um, but, you know, within the next 8 to 12 months, when council's receiving information around the true operating and maintenance costs, the final ones, we'll also be able to be talking about here's the financial plan, here's the transit plan, uh, so that there's a real clear sense of where we're going over the next seven years. One of the councillors said it last night, of course, I, I can't remember off the top of my head who, but we do have, uh, you know, that five to seven year window to help build some of the rest of the conventional transit system before LRT is in operation. Well, there's some points that uh, that were made and, and reiterated, I guess, yesterday too, that I think are very germane to the conversation. Uh, and one of them, of course, was Council Marula and the mantra that he's been talking about over the last little while, that the lion's share of the work and the money, actually, that's being spent here is for stuff under the ground uh, to replace and repair uh, infrastructure, which is going to be a real boon to the city. But there were still those that obviously were opposed to this, Paul. And and the concern that was raised by a number of them in the, in their speeches yesterday was we're still not getting all the answers. And Councillor Connolly talked about that. Councillor Partridge did. Councillor Brenda Johnson did. And it seemed to swirl, from from what I could ascertain, about operating costs and maintenance costs. And and they seem to be under the impression that that is going to fall to the city. That's something that we, the Hamilton taxpayers, are are going to be burdened with. Uh, Now, I don't remember that discussion taking place as far as I was concerned. Uh, That's that's yet to be determined. What, What is the status of that? So ultimately, the final uh, costing in terms of operations and maintenance, so when we're talking operations and maintenance, it's the day-to-day pieces. The province has been pretty clear as we look at the deals they're cutting with, uh, with other communities that are doing rapid transit, that the city of Hamilton is going to continue to receive all the revenues from transit, whether it's LRT or buses, uh, we're going to receive the revenue. Uh, the offset to that is that uh, the municipality be responsible for some contribution towards the day-to-day operations and maintenance of the system. And that is something that uh, the people who are bidding on this project will compete to. So one of the thing, reasons we're waiting is that we want these companies to compete. They're going to compete on construction costs, the capital. They're also going to be competing on operations and maintenance. And if you talk to the folks in Kitchener-Waterloo, uh, they were quite pleased with the results of that competitive process because you get the absolute best price in terms of your operations as well. So uh, things like insurance, things like financing, things like the capital costs, we don't have to worry about as taxpayers. Those day-to-day elements, uh, we're going to be contributing to Metrolink so that uh, this system can operate. But remember, we're getting enhanced transit. This is going to run evenings. It's going to run weekends. Uh, it's going to provide all the same service or better than than people receive now in terms of our express service. Uh, and the you know the other piece is that uh, the capital costs of this and the long term maintenance costs of this are not going to be borne by the city of Hamilton. Long term maintenance, uh, but there obviously is going to be an impact. Obvi- but there is already with our transit. We do that. Uh, no matter where we live and no matter what kind of service we get. Uh, the other concern about this, obviously, when, when we get into situations like this, of course, when and dealing with money, uh, is, uh, is, is cost overruns. And again, some of the councillors seem to be of the attitude that that falls to the city. Uh, I, I, from the comments I've seen from Metrolinx, and this goes back to the days when Mr. McQuaig was still here, is that that wasn't the case. Is, has that been clarified? It is. It's uh, been clarified by Metrolinx, and in fact, it's written into the memorandum of agreement, and and that is that uh, from a responsibility perspective, capital costs are the responsibility of Metrolinx. 
uh, and the province of Ontario, obviously. So uh, this is not something that we're in any kind of agree, uh, you know, share, cost-sharing agreement around. This is not a situation where uh, they're good to a point and then we pick up after that point. Uh, it's not that at all. So the capital costs are the responsibility of Metrolinx. Uh, and what you heard yesterday in the in the minister's letter is that uh, they want to work with us through Metrolinx uh, to ensure that the, the total capital project that we want, Eastgate to McMaster, uh, that there's a way to make that happen. And we do think there's a way to make that happen. Uh, no longer advancing the A line at this time, deferring that to a later uh, process means that there are not there's money on the table. We don't need to do studies, as you've mentioned, in terms of the LRT to Eastgate. So all of that resource that's available from the A line spur can be used towards uh, ex- extending this three kilometers east. But with that in mind, the number I saw from, from the saving by not proceeding with the A-line at this stage uh, is not equal to the amount of money that would be needed, obviously, to complete this to Eastgate Square. It, it seems as if there's still going to be a shortfall. Now, Minister Del Duca's letter seemed to indicate that they're going to, I hate to use this phrase, find efficiencies uh, somewhere within the existing envelope. Are you concerned that, uh, that that may mean whittling away some of the other things that you've already decided on? Uh, we're always concerned about budget, but I would say on a budget or on a project of this size and scope, there are a whole bunch of things that can come into play. Uh, this is a tight budget. It remains a tight budget, but um, we are not talking about, you know, uh, major, you know, cutting room floor pieces here. This project is what it is. I mean, we have no choice. We have to get across the 403. We need a bridge. We have to make sure that we keep our running times up. We need to have that underpass. Uh, the, the elements of this project are, are, are fairly set. I think what everybody is doing is a couple of things here, Bill. One is, uh, you know, let's put the pressure on, on the private sector, those that are going to be bidding on this project to come through with the best possible price for this project. And uh, the other piece is, is that we do feel the envelope uh, gets us, uh, you know, close enough. If it was completely ridiculous, uh, and we've been using in the past, of course, typical costs, um, but you have to get into the work and price out what the actual work is, not talk in generalities of 50 to 75 million a, a kilometer. Well, that's a huge band difference. Um, you know, the bottom line is, is the extra three kilometers doesn't add anything to our operations, maintenance, and storage facility. It's the same size and scope it was, whether it's 11 kilometers or 14. So things like that don't change. Uh, and, and we sharpen our pencils the best we can. And then we also, you know, put the pressure on the private sector to come back with a price. Uh, they want this work. They want to uh, be part of this project. And uh, we have confidence that we can find ways to make this work. When does the private sector become a player in this? Uh, within the next few months. Originally, we were going out this summer with the RFP, not we as the city, but we as the project, so uh, Metrolinx and Infrastructure Ontario. Um, that will probably get shifted just a little bit. We do need to do the engineering work so we can provide them with some good information about what they're actually bidding on in the East End. But we're talking about uh, uh, you know a minor adjustment to that, uh, maybe by two or three months at the most. And uh, Andrew and I's first job, of course, Andrew Hope from Metrolinx, is we're going to sit down and figure out what our project schedule is now. Uh, get on track and and then report that back. But we are not talking about a large-scale shift in timing. Uh, But it's probably bumped out just a little bit from our original goal of getting it out midsummer. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. In a career that has spanned over 50 years, he has generated sales in excess of 140 million records, 64 gold albums, 35 platinum albums, four Grammy nominations, a Golden Globe, star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, the Las Vegas Walk of Fame, and the Leicester Walk of Fame. He is the legendary Engelbert Humperdinck. He's coming back to Hamilton. 
But before he even does that, he's going to join us right now on the Bill Kelly Show on CHML. Engelbert, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you with us today. You're very welcome. Nice to be with you, Ben. Uh, and uh, welcome back to Hamilton. You've always been a fan favorite every time you've played here at Hamilton Place, and uh, we look forward to that show. It's, by the way, coming up uh, May the 7th at First Ontario Concert Hall, uh, which is the old Hamilton Place, and you've played there many times before and always, always, always had a wonderful reception from the crowd here in Hamilton. Thank you very much, and I'm looking forward to doing it again. Listen, we should, first of all, before we get too much into this, uh, wish you a happy anniversary. Uh, this is this is a pretty big year. This is the 50th anniversary of, uh, of the release of uh, your first big hit, Release Me and Let Me Love Again. That's right, yeah. And uh, it, it, it's been, so far, it's been great, and, it, and it's going to be all year round. <laughs> the first 50 years have been great, haven't they? Oh, absolutely, yeah. And, and you know, I mean, starting the celebration this year was great, January the 13th. That's when it was released. Mm-hmm. And uh, it hit around the world, which started my career, and stopped the Beatles from going to number one with Penny Lane and Strawberry Field and uh, in the Guinness Book of Records. This is such a great story, too, and, and, and especially for somebody like yourself. I know that uh, you are a self-confessed uh, introvert. You're kind of shy. You, you never thought you'd be the sort of guy that would stand up in, in, on a stage and, and sing songs like this when you were younger, did you? No, I didn't. Uh, I, I had no uh, aspirations of being a singer. What I wanted to be was, was a musician, and, uh, and that was, that was my, my thoughts about my future. But uh, when I was 17 years old, all that changed when I was singing in a club. Uh, I accidentally got up and sang, and uh, uh, it went down very well. And I, I said, uh, I think the instrument is in my throat. <laughs> Did you, you know, like so many other people, though, Engelbert, were you astounded, as, as I say, as you started to mature and you started to listen to your own voice, that, hey, maybe, maybe I've got something here? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I don't know. You know I've just got fortunate. Uh, it took me a long time to get to get the song released me from 17 to about, uh, you know, to 1967, which is a few years in between, you know, but uh, uh, like 10 or 12 years. Sometimes, years. sometimes being successful, as, as talented as an individual can be, it's uh, it's a break. It's being in the right place at the right time. And and you had one of those breaks early in 1967 when you uh, ended up hosting one of the most popular uh, variety shows in the U.K. at that time. On a Sunday night, wasn't but it? I, yes, it was called Sunday Night at the London Palladium. And, and, and the star of the show, uh, uh, unfortunately, was taken ill, and I replaced him. Uh, if, if he hadn't have gotten ill uh, and I didn't sing, I probably wouldn't be talking to you right now. But <laughs> it's destiny. There's destiny and faith that uh, that uh, you know that I went on that show at that particular time. Because the very ne- the, the the song released me was already released, but it was it was not making any progress at all. And uh, as soon as I did this show, the very next day it was selling like eighty thousand, ninety thousand a day. You know, and this went on quite some time. And the maximum amount of the record sold in one day was one hundred and twenty-seven thousand. And 
it's just uh, uh, unreal, and that's one of the reasons why it's in the Guinness Book of Records. How did you come to record the song? I know it wasn't, you, you did it in 67. It wasn't uh, recorded just a, a couple of years, I guess, before that. But but I'm always intrigued by the song. And, and anybody who, for instance, uh, likes country music, Engelbert, you would know this, uh, knows that the song was released uh, by Ray Price a couple of years before that down in Nashville. Uh, how did you tap in? How did you tap into that Nashville sound and start to start to record some of those songs? Because it turned out to be a mother load for you. Well, you know, once I once I realized that uh, that released me was a country song, and and people realized that I could sing country music, uh, my manager and the record company uh, put their heads together and said, "Well, let's do some more." So and and he did, and then along came songs like uh, "There Goes My Everything," "Am I That Easy to Forget," all country songs, and all went number one. You know. But with your own specific and unique touch to them, too. I mean, they weren't simply reproductions of the original songs that were done down in Nashville. And uh, between yourself and, and your manager, Gordon Mills, uh, you, you developed a, a very unique sound in, in that era, didn't you? Yeah, we sure did. I, we sure did. And he was quite, I mean, he was really the uh, the person that changed my life because he not only stamped my style, got my style stamped through doing these uh, romantic songs, etc., but... He he also chose the name Engelbert Company, which is now <laughs> getting getting on in age, and people people yeah, have forgotten my old name. Thank God. <laughs> not, not thank God, but you know, uh, you know, thank God for Engelbert Company that I I had success with it. You know. Well, the original Engelbert Humperdinck, of course, was a German composer. Wrote uh, the opera Hansel and Gretel, uh, but I think you own yeah. the name now. Uh, well, I, I think so because he. Hansel and Gretel, and that had quite a few gold and platinum albums. Thank God. It's uh, it's gone so very well for you. I, I got to ask you something, and because your, your your life story is so unique. Of course, you were born in India. Your your father was serving in the military at the time. You you did some military service. You left school at a very early age uh, to to uh, choose a, and go into the to the show business and to singing and to music, especially obviously, and do and do a, a number of other things. But you are a very educated man, even if it isn't uh, academic education. You're you're very well rounded. How many languages do you speak, Engelbert? Well, I speak a little bit of Spanish and German and uh, uh, and English. That's it. Uh, those are the three languages. But I can say good evening, ladies and gentlemen, in any language. <laughs> well, I, I know. I know. One time, one time when I saw you in Hamilton here, you actually uh, you gave us a little bit of Chinese Mandarin. I guess it was. <laughs> oh yeah, I do a little bit of everything. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I guess Russia was the it was the hardest. You know, Dobrovetsha Domnyegospoda. It's a really, it's a, one of the highlights of the show, and, and, and you know, it just, I think, in, indicates to us the, the breadth of your, your knowledge. You, you, I mean, you've traveled all over the world. This is just a phenomenal career that you've enjoyed. I mean, you've, you've filled concert halls in just about every city, every country, every continent in the world, at the, and, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's been a, a great ride for you so far. An amazing, an amazing career, an amazing journey. And I certainly hope it never ends there. Well, I don't see it happening anytime soon. I mean, things are going so well for you. Uh, you know, I mentioned how you've tapped into that Nashville sound, the country music sound, and, and had so much success with this. And, and I can't help but think of the parallels, Engelbert, between you and uh, I, I think another great music legend, Tony Bennett, who did the very same thing. Now, he was a little older than, than you guys. I mean, 1951 is when he started singing Hank Williams songs and things of this nature. Uh, and it worked for him, yeah. and it, it certainly worked for you, too, didn't it? 
certainly did. It certainly did. But, you know, I love the challenge, though. I, I like singing all kinds of songs now. And uh, I've even incorporated a song from, uh, from uh, 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 where is it now? New York. Um, on, on Broadway. I, I've incorporated a song from Broadway. And uh, that's in my show. And it's a great arrangement done by Johnny Harris, a very dear friend and uh, a musical arranger that I know and has done some great stuff for me in the past. And uh, I'm uh, I'm doing all those kind of songs on stage now, even one of those kind of songs from Broadway. But I've got a variety of, of different music that I'm presenting to my audience now. I also... I also bring in them two brand new songs, and I use it as a as a, a, a I use my audience as a barometer to find out which one they approve to be the next single. And and we should mention the reason you're talking about that is because you're back in the studio here, 50 years into the career, and and you're recording yeah. again. This is an album. There's some greatest hits on there, but as you mentioned, some new material as well. No, no, I'm I'm, I'm all my greatest hits will be released on a on an 11 box uh, set. Uh, and uh, by Universal, and but I'm now recording a brand new album of all new songs, which I've never done in my life before. I've usually had some covers on on, on these songs, you know, but this time it's, it's a brand new material, and it's 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 an unusual thing for me at the, this stage of my career. When you look out uh, into the crowd, when when you're in concert, Engelbert, uh, you must be amazed at the at the cross section of, of age groups that are out there. Uh, there are folks that have been with you since uh, since 1967 with Release Me, but you you've opened up a whole new market too. There's an awful lot of young people, millennials actually, that are Engelbert Humperdinck fans. They certainly are, and I can't believe it. It's a, it's an amazing uh, it's an amazing situation because at the end of the show the the crowd comes forward and they they fill the bottom of the stage, you know, and and it's uh, it's just an it's like a a cup following, you know, and with all these different age groups out there, it's just wonderful. Well, you again to use the Tony Bennett analogy. I mean, you did something that Tony Bennett did too. Uh, you you exposed yourself to the audience at MTV, which automatically exposes you to a brand new audience, didn't it? Yeah, it did. It did. It brought me in the audience. Uh, and, and, but I think with social media today and, and the way people, you know, who want, want to find out a little bit about you, you know, they get on Facebook and uh, and, and and Twitter and all these different uh, things. And they they can see what's going on in your life today. And, and it's it's today's presentation that people are interested in, I think, you know. And the presentation that I put on stage is what, what they see on Facebook. Engelbert, you've played, uh, we've mentioned so many different concerts all over the world, of course, over these 50 years, but you've played before the Queen four times, you've played in front of presidents, heads of state, and, and this, is a, this is a guy that wasn't really crazy about the idea of standing up and performing in the first place. Do you, have you gotten used to it? Do you, do you, are you at ease when you're on stage, or is that still a little bit of nervousness that you feel? I never, I'll never get used to it. I, I still get, I still get uh, butterflies before the show. My hands get cold, and and I'm stamping and jump, and and you know my feet backstage and walking up and down, and it's just true. And I and I'm holding a live mic away from me and, and belting out notes, trying to keep my voice warm before I walk on stage. It's a, it's an, it's something to see. It really is a nervous wreck. <laughs> are you aware of the crowd? I mean, when you you play in front of the Queen or presidents, are you aware that they're there, or are you just kind of zoned into the performance while you're on stage? 
I'm aware of this. I'm aware of who, whoever comes and sits in my audience. Yeah, and uh, it, sometimes that puts a little edge, a bit, bit, bit more of an edge to your uh, uh, to your performance. You get, I get more nervous about that. But I think, I think getting nervous is is, is very good because it keeps you on your toes. You know? Is there a favorite Engelbert Humperdinck song? I mean, you had so many great hits. You know, we've, we've talked a little bit about Release Me, but The Last Waltz, Am I That Easy to Forget? Uh, After the Lovin' was a, a fabulous hit for you. Been, I mean, we could go on and on just listing some of these things. Uh, and you've done great versions of some other stuff, too. I know that you and Bert Kempford struck up a friendship back in those days, and, and you did some of his yeah. music, and, and, and those were wonderful, too. Is, is, are there, are there yeah. can't-miss songs that you just say, yeah, that's, that's one of my favorites of all time? Mm, I, no, I I have to say the couple of the couple of the ones that really stick out in my mind. I, I would say recently in Last Waltz and uh, after the Loving because the, like the Last Waltz was played uh, uh, in every dance hall around the world, you know. Yeah. And of course, uh, and it and it's still to this day a very popular song in my show. Uh, and of course, Release Me is and After the Loving, and they're not they're not new. They've been around for some time. But this is what people want to hear, so that I present them with it. And it's my pleasure to do that because they're great songs. Is it, is it fun to do those? I mean, the song that comes to mind, that leaps to my mind, Angelbert, is uh, A Man Without Love, which is one of my favorites. Uh, and it really dis- oh, yeah. it really displays your vocal range. It, yeah, it, it does to an extent. Yes, it does. Uh, uh, and uh, the lyrics were written by uh, uh, one of my, my friends. His name is Barry Mason. Uh, uh, Les Reed and Barry Mason wrote some great hits for me. Yeah, you know, like uh, you know, Les, uh, they wrote the last wall, so they basically the belt size. You know, the love is all. Um, there's so many, so many big hits, and of course, Man Without Love is uh, Barry Mason wrote the lyric because that's an Italian melody. We are so looking forward to having you back in our area. And uh, the date, once again, for the show is uh, May 7th, of course, at First Ontario Currency Hall. That's the old Hamilton place in downtown Hamilton. Celebrating 50 years. And, uh, Engelbert, we look forward to the show and uh, wish you another 50 years, at least, of, of entertaining us and uh, doing such a, a wonderful job of, uh, of bringing the gift of music in your own unique way. Thank you so much for this. My pleasure, sir. My pleasure. Thank you. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.